Well, good morning, Cornerstone. If you uh, have a Bible with you, it is my honor and privilege to invite you to point your Bibles to the book of 2 Corinthians. As you can see from the sign behind me, 2 Corinthians, we're going to pick up where we left off last week in chapter 10. 2 Corinthians chapter 10. If you don't have a Bible, there's one under the chair in front of you, and you will find 2 Corinthians chapter 10 on page 968. 2 Corinthians chapter 10. We're going to read from verse 1 down to uh, verse 6. That's where we'll spend our time together this morning. If you're new, my name is Jamie. I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, we work through books of the Bible a little bit at a time. And so here we are in 2 Corinthians 10, 1 through 6. So if you're there, we'll go ahead and read. And then I'll ask for the Lord's help on our time together. And then uh, we'll dive right in and get to work. It should be 45 minutes or so. This is the word of the Lord. I, Paul, myself entreat you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. I who am humble when face to face with you, but bold toward you when I am away. I beg you, that when I'm present, I may not have to show boldness with such confidence as I count on showing against some who suspect us of walking according to the flesh. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but we have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we pray for your spirit to come now and show kindness to us. For, Lord, we know our hearts all too well, that we will hear this word of yours, and there are parts of it that we will push back against. There are parts in us that don't want to hear what you're saying to us. And so we ask, Lord, for your spirit to come and to soften our hearts with your mercy to soften our hearts with the glory of Jesus, the beauties of the cross, and enable us to understand what it is that we're reading, to follow you in faithfulness for Jesus' sake. God's people said amen. Well, I hope a fallen letter is not a sign of how this series is going or this sermon will be. After single-handedly fighting off about a dozen of his Arabian enemies with nothing more than his bare knuckles and a bullwhip, Indiana Jones encounters his most formidable opponent yet, a man with a scimitar. The man chuckles with an evil confidence as he swings his large sword across his body twice. Our hero is doomed for what is a a whip and bare knuckles against a man with a sword. 
But the ever-clever Dr. Jones reaches into his pouch and pulls out a pistol and shoots the armed baddie. One wonders why he didn't just use the gun the whole time. Nevertheless, Indy eventually saves the day from the Raiders of the Lost Ark. This silly scene encapsulates the English idiom, don't bring a knife to a gunfight. It's good advice with a long history bearing out its truth. There are few more examples of this truth than the tragic Spanish conquest of the Incan peoples. In search for gold, conquistador Francisco Pizarro came upon the Incan nation led by the great Atahualpa. And though vastly outnumbered, Pizarro and his 168 men set up a meeting with the Incan leader. And the Spanish launched a surprise attack, opening fire with guns never before seen or heard by the natives. And they trampled them with horses, also never seen or heard by the natives. The conquistadors fought with steel swords, wore steel armor, while the Native Americans fought with stone, bronze, quilted armor. The Incan warriors were thrown into a panic, and the great Atahualpa was captured within minutes. The Incans numbered into the millions. They were protected by an army of 80,000 warriors, and they were defeated by less than 200 men with guns, horses, and metal armor. They had brought knives into a gunfight and suffered, suffered tragic loss. While history is replete with stories like this, military blunders, generals misreading their opponents, poorly planning for battle, and suffering great loss as a consequence. When going into battle, it's important to know your enemy. It's important to know the battle you're facing. That's true of war, and that's true of the Christian life. Lord knows the number of churches that could have been spared a split, the number of marriages that could have been spared a divorce, the number of friendships that could have been spared a breakup, had God's people learned to discern the real enemy. It's a little bit like the Apostle Peter cutting off the ear of Malchus in the Garden of Gethsemane. Swords have been swung in the wrong direction at the wrong time against the wrong people. And so our Lord must intervene and heal severed limbs. Friends, we must learn to recognize the real battle, to fight with the right weapon. Because far too often we trust what we see. We fight the wrong enemy. We fight the wrong enemy with the wrong weapons in the wrong way. And we waste valuable resources and we cause needless damage. We've called this series in 2 Corinthians, By Faith, Not By Sight, for this reason. If you trust in what you see, you may find yourself waging war against the wrong enemy with the wrong weapons. But if we follow the Spirit of the Lord and the example that 
Christ has given us and the example that the Apostle Paul has given us, we will see that the war we wage is not a physical one. It's not a worldly one. It's a spiritual one. It is a battle in the mind. The power of our enemy is in the lies that we believe about the character and nature of our God. And thus, our weapon is God's truth. Here's the big idea this morning. Ours is a spiritual battle fought with the spiritual weapon of God's truth. Ours is a spiritual battle fought with God's weapon, the truth. To make this passage manageable, we'll take it on in three sections. First, we'll look at the right weapons used in the right way. This is verses 1 and 2. You can read it again. I, Paul, myself entreat you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. I, who am humble when face to face with you, but bold toward you when I'm away. I beg of you that when I'm present, I may not have to show boldness with such confidence as I count on showing against some who suspect suspect us of walking according to the flesh. I'm sure you know this. In this life, you will have conflict. And you have to learn how to deal with conflict. And the most important skill in dealing with conflict is identifying the right enemy. Fighting the right way at the right time. Ecclesiastes teaches us, didn't it, a number of months ago, there's a time for war and there's a time for peace. And many of us have yet to learn the fine art of choosing our battles. If we are going to win this war, we should expect that we won't win every battle. Some battles, you just have to let go for another time. Otherwise, you and everyone else will be exhausted by constant conflict, constant battling, constant fighting, and you will be weary, and they will be weary, and you will make poor decisions Let me explain what I mean. Here, you see the Apostle Paul embroiled in conflict in the Corinthian church. If you've been with us at any point during this series, you've learned that they had rejected the Apostle's authority and they had entertained false teaching in their church and they had celebrated sin in their church. And so Paul had to make an unscheduled visit to that church and set things straight. But the church rejected their Apostle, spurned his authority, And he leaves, disappointed, and then writes them a severe letter, rebuking them for sin, calling them to repent. Well, you'll remember, by God's grace, to God be the glory, the Corinthian church repented and sought to reconcile with their apostle. There's still a mess to be cleaned up in that church, but they had admitted they were wrong and they sought forgiveness from the Lord and from their apostle. And the letter we're reading today is the letter that Paul is writing in response to learning of their repentance. And here we see him urging them to continue bearing fruit in keeping with repentance. We see him addressing some of the accusations that were against him. It seems that some were, were, were claiming that Paul is inconsistent Sometimes you're nice and heavy-handed. Other times you're real soft-footed. Down in verse 10, Paul goes right on to their accusations. For they say his letters are weighty and strong, but his bodily presence is weak. His speech is of no account. 
Sometimes Paul came in real strong. Other times he came in real weak. And they were concerned that this was inconsistent. When dealing with conflict, Paul knew that the, you have to use the right weapons at the right time. And I just would draw your attention to the weapons the Apostle Paul is using in the conflict with the Corinthians. In verse 1, meekness and gentleness. The meekness and gentleness of Christ. I would encourage you this week, if you have some time, to do a word study on those two words. You will learn that what Paul means here is the the, the virtue that the Lord Jesus showed through moderation, through flexibility, in dealing graciously with people in conflict. It's the Lord moderating the severity of His wrath for the sake of showing grace toward those He loved. We are all here today because the Lord controlled His power, moderated the severity of His wrath in order to show grace because the Lord Jesus was meek and gentle. We can still draw breath today. Some of us are so unlike the Lord in conflict. We skip right over meekness and gentleness and patience and flexibility. In conflict, we just sometimes just pull the cord and blow everything sky high. Or we take the cyanide pill as soon as we see that things aren't going to go our way. We just back out. We either blow the whole thing up or we just walk away. That's not like Jesus. Jesus would handle conflict with grace, with ease, with an invincible trust in His Father. You remember after Peter cut off that dude's ear in the garden? You remember what Jesus said? Jesus said, Peter, don't you know I could call down 10,000 angels from heaven to protect me at this moment against these Romans and their tiny little swords? I have the de- I'm the king of heaven. I have the death angel on speed dial. I flooded the world once. Do you remember, Peter? I don't need anyone to defend me. No meekness poured out of Jesus every time the Pharisees accused him. The disciples were being dumb. Every time you remember the rich young ruler who said, I'm perfect, Jesus. Meekness. When he hung on the cross, he said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. He tempered justice in order to show grace. It's the same weapon the Apostle Paul brought into the battle with the Corinthians. And for the conflicts in your life, make meekness, make gentleness your go-to weapon of choice. For, for Proverbs 15.1 is still true to this day. A soft answer turns away wrath. Paul admits, I'm humble when I'm face to face with you. To be humble means to think of yourself as a servant, as someone of no account, Humility is looking to God in His manifold glory and then making an honest assessment about yourself in light of Him. On Thursday, a friend of mine dropped in the office unannounced, which I'm happy for people to do. His name is Steve. He's a pastor of a small church in Dark County. 
He's a wise man. He's been pastoring that same church for over 30 years. And I asked Steve the same question I ask of every pastor that I meet who's been in ministry for longer than me. How, how can I serve these people for decades if the Lord gives them to me without becoming cynical, without becoming burned out, without losing my wife and children to the mistress of the ministry? I've asked this question a dozen times to a dozen different pastors. And Steve's answer, it's almost like he was expecting me to ask it. Like it just came out of him. Like the answer itself was a part of him. And he said, Jamie, you need to learn to love being a servant of your people than a minister to your people. Learn to be a servant more than a minister. He was speaking of humility. Recognizing you are a servant to others. If you are a Christian here this morning, the greatest service that Pastor Brent and I can do for you is to teach you to be humble. To think of others as more important than yourselves. The Lord Jesus told the disciples that their idea of greatness was upside down. If you're taking notes, I would recommend that you write down Matthew chapter 20, verse 26 to 28, and spend some time there this week. Jesus said, for whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. If you would have great effect amidst conflict in your life, carry the weapon of humility, the kind described by your Lord in Matthew chapter 20, 26 to 28. Meekness, gentleness, humility. These are your primary weapons in conflict. Well, you can see verse 2, there's another weapon the apostle mentions. It seems, and when I read verse 2, it seems this is a bit of a last resort kind of weapon. When all else has failed, when the walls have caved in, when there's no other choice, boldness. You get a sense in verse 2, don't you, that Paul doesn't want to use boldness with them if he doesn't have to. He said, I'll go toe-to-toe if you want me to. I don't want to. I will, but I don't want to. For some of us, boldness is your go-to weapon. You live your life with your finger on the trigger, and everybody else lives their life on thin ice. Can I be honest with you? It's not effective. And no one likes that you're that way. You believe on insisting on order and rightness, but you fail to see that your reaction to conflict is as unchristian as the sin that led to the conflict. It does not honor the Lord, it is cowardice. It produces pride and the fear of man. 
And I would have you memorize James chapter 1, verse 20. The anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Husbands, fathers, the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. The short, cutting, tearing down of your family will not produce the righteousness of God. Here's the takeaway. Carry the right weapons into conflict and know the right time to use the right weapon. Before you turn to boldness, marinate this matter in meekness. Before you turn to boldness, soak the situation in humility. Which brings me to my second point. Learn to fight the right fight. This is verses 3 and 4. For though we walk in the flesh, we're not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. And I think this is probably where most of us go wrong. We fight the wrong fight because we've identified the wrong enemy. We launch attacks against the wrong targets. We get confused in the battle. The issue gets foggy. And we start throwing out friendly fire. So there's a scene in uh, the timeless classic movie, Robin Hood, Men in Tights, (laughs) where the blind character, Blinken, he's trying to help the good guys win a sword fight. And he's blind, poor guy. And he's got a sword and he's swinging it in the air. He can't see anyone. And he makes his way to a wooden pole. And he begins to parry with the wooden pole back and forth, thinking he's winning the fight, but actually doing nothing except making wood chips on the floor while the real battle takes place around him. If you can't see the real enemy in the fight, that's what it's like. You're parrying with a wooden pole, not doing any good, just making damage. Paul is helpful to us here. In the conflict at Corinth, he says, I'm not waging war according to the flesh. I prefer the NIV translation in verse 3. It says, for though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. You see, the world sees the wrong enemy and fights the wrong fight. Paul well understood that we live in the flesh, but we don't wage war according to the flesh, with fleshly weapons, with worldly weapons in the way the world does, because ours is a spiritual battle. No one was better at making this distinction than the Lord Jesus. In Luke chapter 12, there's a guy in the crowd who asks Jesus to intervene in a fight that he's having with his brother over an inheritance. And Jesus says, Man, who made me judge or arbiter over you? And then Jesus gets to the real issue. He says, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. You see, in this example, the Lord applied the right weapon to the right fight. That man's enemy was not his stingy brother. That man's enemy was the greed in his heart. His enemy was covetousness. 
And as long as he misidentified the enemy, he would fight the wrong fight and he would likely ruin the relationship with his brother. But once he learned to fight the greed in his heart, he would likely have success with his brother. Here's how it plays out in my life as a dad. When my children disobey me, I take it personal. I interpret the battle as being waged against me. After all, they've insulted my honor by breaking my rules. And to my shame, I often reply using worldly weapons. Anger. The dad voice. Demeaning. Doing whatever I can to make them feel powerless so that I can feel powerful since I have been insulted. But the battle is not against me. The battle is for their heart. They have chosen something other than God in that moment. They have sinned against the Lord and the good authority God has given to them in their life. Fight the wrong battle on the wrong battlefield using worldly weapons, I will lose the battle of their heart. And their heart will not be moved to softness and turn to Christ. It will be hardened. They'll begin to despise their father. Hard hearts are rarely softened by raised voices. I'm saying that to myself. Hard hearts are rarely softened by raised voices. So this is a battle for the heart. Don't forget the Lord Jesus said, for out of the heart come evil thoughts and murder and adultery and sexual immorality and theft and false witness and slander. Adultery? Out of the heart? I was thinking it would be a different body part. Sexual immorality? Again, maybe I've got some, maybe my anatomy's wrong here. Lying, thieving? These are not caused by external circumstances, and they won't be fixed by external means. Jesus said these are problems of the heart. They come from inside. And as long as we try to fight spiritual battles with worldly weapons, we will lose the war. Because these weapons don't have divine power to make divine change. The conflict at Corinth was a spiritual conflict. And Paul knew if he took worldly weapons to address the sins in that church, it would cause more problems. Instead, he said in 1 Corinthians, I decided to know nothing among you except Christ and Christ crucified. The conflicts in your life, Cornerstone, are spiritual. The conflicts that you will encounter in your marriage, in raising your children, the conflicts you have in business, work, the conflicts you're having about finances, the conflicts that you have in friendships, the conflicts that you have in the church, these are spiritual conflicts. And they will be won by the power of God using the weapons of His choosing. Spiritual weapons. 
Bring nothing to this fight except the gospel of Jesus Christ demonstrated through your weakness, humbled under the fear of God, equipped with Christ-like meekness, gentleness, and humility. Like all spiritual battles, this will be won not by taking but by giving. Not by tearing down but by building up. Not by taking life, but by losing life. Not by putting someone in their place, but by you knowing yours. If you find yourself at any point in conflict expressing your power, you're losing. Remember, your eyes will always deceive you in this fight. Don't trust in them. It is so easy to think the battle is out there with those people. It's easy to think that this battle is situational. It isn't. It's spiritual. The battle is internal. Mostly in this internal. With the pride in my heart. With my lust for power and control over my life. If you will have any effect for good in conflict. Use the right weapons in the right fight. If you're here today and you're not a Christian, I'm just so very glad that you came today. We are expecting you to come today. That's why we put those Bibles into the chairs in front of you. That's why this congregation would be delighted if you wanted to just take that Bible home today. This is the perfect day to come to church. Because the Lord would have you know that your biggest problem isn't the situations that you think it is. It's not your finances. Your biggest problem isn't with your spouse or with your boyfriend or girlfriend. It isn't with your boss. It isn't with societal structures. Your problem is with your sin. And what your sin has done to your spiritual state and your relationship to God. If you are in sin, you are under the judgment of God. And nothing you can do will make your situation any better. This is an internal problem you cannot fix. There is only one solution. You must turn to God. Only through Christ will you find forgiveness for your sin. Because Jesus went to the cross and bore the penalty of your sin. And through trusting in Him, you will be granted forgiveness and peace with God. Don't leave here today still in your sins. Trust in Christ. And then tell someone about it. These are my friends. And if you tell one of them about it, I know that they'd be delighted to help you in this new journey, walking in forgiveness and peace with God. Ours is a spiritual battle. Our weapons are spiritual weapons. And we must fight the right fight using the right weapons. But we must also make sure that we're fighting the right foe, which is my third point, verses 5 and 6. Paul writes, we destroy arguments and lay every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. Notice what Paul says. Here's what he's fighting. Strongholds, arguments. 
taking captives. He's punishing disobedience. He mentions no names here. I don't know if I would have had the wherewithal that the Apostle Paul does. I'd have been like, it's that guy. It's him. Here's his number. Here's his address. He's the problem. Paul said, this is about arguments. This is about believing lies about who God is. These are spiritual strongholds. A stronghold is a fortress, a military installation. Paul defines these strongholds in verse 5 as false arguments, lofty opinions raised against the knowledge of God. And so when Paul goes on the offensive in this conflict, he wages war not on the Corinthian people, but on false ideologies. The source of conflict is not people. It's lies the people believe. So how does Paul fight this battle against this foe? He destroys arguments. He tears down anything that postures itself arrogantly about the truth, about who God is. D.A. Carson is helpful here, and he says that our spiritual weapons destroy the way people think, demolish their sinful thought patterns, the mental structures by which they live their lives in rebellion against God. Paul well understood where the battle was waged. He was tearing down wrong ideas about Christ in the mind of the Corinthians by reinforcing the truth and the character and the nature of God. The greatest effect that you will have in the conflicts that you're in, whether they're at home or whether they're in church or whether they're at work, is by lovingly, selflessly, gently, and persuasively teaching the Bible. If all you're doing is telling everyone what they're doing wrong, you're just building your own pride. And if you truly love those with whom you're in conflict with, then do the harder thing, brother and sister. Study Scripture together. Serve them by growing their knowledge of God. So let me just say this as simply as I can. All conflict is the result of one or more people believing something untrue about the character and nature of God. That's the source of your conflict. Someone or everyone is believing something untrue about who God is. That's what continues conflict. So long as we think that the problems in our lives are are something that someone did to us or something someone said to us, we will fail to see that the actual problem is in the lie that we believe about God. And thus we will never have freedom. We'll be trapped by our thoughts, slaves to the lies that we believe. Because lies always exact a cost. They harden our hearts. They stiffen our pride. And the fear of man spills over our lives and we hurt one another with our harshness and our disrespect. But once we tear down those lies and we set up the truth in its place, we will know freedom from trusting in the goodness of God, trusting in the promises of God, experiencing the joy of serving others, 
will become humble and patient and meek and gentle. You wouldn't think it works like this, but it does. The more truth that you believe about God, the more tender you become, the more willing you are to let some things slide so that you can show grace. But the more lies that you believe about God, the more harsh you become, the more exacting you become. You'll spend time tearing people down, not building them up. Whatever conflict is in your life, dear friend, look for the lie and replace it with the truth. Do you remember in the garden, Eve believed a lie about God? That he was withholding something good from her? That he had to go around God's, that she had to go around God's commandments to disobey God in order to find happiness, find what she was looking for? And it brought death. That man in the crowd who asked Jesus to intervene between him and his brother, he was believing a lie that God is not a good provider. That somehow if my brother would share his inheritance with me, then I would have what I need. And Jesus corrected him. A good life is not the one that consists of abundance of possessions, but in an abundance of God. Why do we retaliate? Isn't it because we don't actually believe that God will be just? So we've got to take matters into our own hands and make them pay for what they did. Why do we steal? Isn't it because we don't actually believe that God will provide for us? So we've got to take matters into our own hands. Take what we want. Why do we manipulate one another? Isn't it because we don't believe that God will answer our prayers? Why do we try to control people? Isn't it because we don't actually believe that God is running the universe in the right way? And we have to give Him a hand? Worry is simply believing a lie that God will not provide. Fear is simply believing a lie that God will not protect. And on and on and on. Whatever the conflict is, look for the lie. You sin because deep down you're believing something contrary to Scripture. Some lie about the character and nature of God. And this is why Paul says we take every thought captive and make it obey Christ. We bring the truth to bear on the matter. Which means, friends, we're going to need to know the Bible. We're going to need to be in the Scripture. You will never grow in your obedience apart from an increasing knowledge of God through His Word. The Bible is simply the greatest weapon in the fight of your life. Last thing Paul says is that when the Corinthian church has turned to Christ and repented of her sins, when she has walked in obedience... Those who remain unrepentant, Paul says, we're going to have to deal with them. We're going to lead you to deal with unrepentant sinners in your membership. This is likely a reference to church discipline of some kind. Those in Corinth who remain in rebellion against God's word will be punished. The collective body of believers in the church, after turning, their, turning back to the Lord in repentance, will deal with unrepentant sin in their membership. We've, been, we've talked about this a number of times here. But they'll call these unrepentant sinners to repent of their sins. And if they don't, the church then loses the ability to affirm that they are in Christ. And therefore, it puts a timeout on their membership and, and bans them from the Lord's table. Welcomes them into the church. They're allowed to come. They're allowed to hear the Bible. But the church no longer has the ability to say, you're a Christian. I can see it by the way you live. 
And therefore, I can't invite you with me to celebrate the Lord's Supper together. We all experience conflict. It's one thing the Lord uses to humble us, to wean us off of self-reliance, to teach us to trust His Word, and to expose the lies we're believing. But we must learn to fight in conflict with the right weapons at the right time in the right way. And it starts and ends by taking a teachable spirit into long, unhurried time in God's Word until we become more like Christ, loving to serve others more than we love to be served, loving to give to others more than we like taking, serving more than we like feeling right and revered. Our battle is a spiritual battle fought with the spiritual weapon of God's truth. Please stand to your feet for the prayer of confession. At the end of our services, we go before the Lord again and we pray a prayer of confession. The Lord has enabled us to see some areas of our life that are out of step with His Word. And so we take those things to the Lord and we ask for Him to forgive us in His mercy. So if you would, please pray with me again. Father in heaven, we ask you this morning for mercy. Mercy because we are a stubborn people. Even through this message, have bristled against this truth. We believe deep down that we know better than you. We believe that meekness is weakness. And Lord, we hate, hate being weak. Forgive us, Father, for rejecting your truth, for being like our first mother and first father and believing a lie about you. Forgive us for our aversion to weakness. Forgive us for fighting the wrong battles and hurting one another. Will you pardon our sin of self-reliance, our pride, our harshness? Will you forgive our arrogance and our lust for power and control? We do not deserve your mercy this morning, but we look to the cross where the greatest act of power was on display, where the spiritual battle was ultimately won. We ask for your mercy because of Jesus. He is our substitute, the one who suffered in our place for our sin without mercy and grace from His cross. We are under the judgment of God. What sad, pitiful creatures we are who take the mercy and grace from our suffering Savior and refuse to give it to others. Forgive us this, O Lord. Enable us to show meekness and gentleness and humility to our friends, to our family to our church. Enable us to be examples of Christ-likeness in the way we handle conflict. Teach us to see the lie and lift up the truth. To think more of others than we do of ourselves. Would you spare us the chest-pounding, power-positioning that just comes too natural to us? We do ask that you would give us boldness But we do ask that you would give us boldness with discernment so we would use it only when necessary for the glory of God and not for our own glory. We pray these things in the name of Jesus who deserves a church and a people who reflect and model him in all of these ways.